Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Jeff, Vice President and General Manager of Autonomous and Undersea Systems at Saab. And they discuss how Jeff has built a career in underwater robots, engineering challenges of building machines for use underwater, and Saab's various unmanned underwater vehicles used in defense, exploration, and more. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. You know, looking at these underwater robots, they're, they look so cool. And there's so many different things that they can do, right? Mm-hmm. And then your title, I couldn't tell, like, are you over all of autonomous systems or are you over like the like aquatic systems that are autonomous? Or can you explain to me what you do there? Um, so at Saab, I'm the vice president and general manager for a brand new division um, called Autonomous and Undersea Systems. So our charter is really unmanned systems in general, but our focus is more on the maritime side. So unmanned undersea vehicles, remotely operated vehicles, unmanned surface vehicles are sort of the, the three focus areas for platforms that we have. That's pretty cool. And then have you been into these underwater robots for a long time or is this a newer thing? Um, it's, it's somehow I've gotten about 30 years of my career already. And, um, about half of that was spent with general dynamics, uh, mostly focused on submarine man, man systems. And then about halfway through my career, I started to get more into the robotic side and shifting to, um, uh, autonomous and, and robotic type systems. And then is this the same Saab that makes the cars? <laughs> so the one thing that Saab actually doesn't make these days is cars. Um, they sold the car industry back in, I think it was the early nineties to general motors. And then they, uh, general motors, I think ended up going bankrupt with them sometime in the mid two thousands. But, uh, in Sweden, Saab is really the defense industrial base. So we make all their jet fighters, their submarines, their surface ships, uh, most of their weapon systems, radars, everything really. Oh, that, you, really? They make the ships, weapon systems, Saab is making this. So you guys, at some point they started they didn't get started with cars. What did they get started with? They actually got started in the uh, uh, mid to late thirties with airplanes. Um, they decided mm-hmm. during world war two that they really wanted to have an indigenous airplane uh, capability. So they started making their own airplanes and they've, they've been, I mean, airplanes is really a big part of the company. It's been a really, really interesting, uh, you know, they've developed a lot of very unique and interesting airframes over the years. And they have uh, one of the top uh, fighters in the world right now. Uh, and in the U.S., they actually work uh, closely with Boeing, and jointly they developed a T-7 uh, trainer jet for the, it's the next generation trainer jet for the U.S. Air Force. So that's being made um, largely by Saab under a prime contract with Boeing out of uh, West Lafayette, Indiana. Oh, that's amazing. My uh, dad was in the Air Force. They put the uh, GPS systems into the B-32 stealth bombers. That's how he got into technology. Oh, wow. Well, that's really cool. So does Saab actually have, like other than the ones you mentioned, I think the T7, do they do they make the frames or are they making the entire jets? Like In Sweden, and it's it's sold internationally, they make the, uh, it's the Gripen aircraft, the fighter. It's um, popularly sold globally. It's, um, I believe they have jets right now in, um, I think at least three or four countries and uh, several more coming. Oh, that's cool. I'm learning so much. That that's I think for most people, Saab is just the car company. It's you know, and, and everybody knows it for that, um, <laughs> which is funny because you know that's the first question I always get is you know, 
we, we really liked those cars. They were nice cars, but they, yeah, they haven't been made in some time. And, uh, you know, Saab, the prime company hasn't made them in, in uh, well, almost 30 years, I guess. Oh, mate. So have you been there your whole career? Um, no. So I've only started with Saab in the last eight months. Um, I've jumped around through uh, several of the large defense primes. I started my own company actually in undersea robotics um, about six years ago. I sold them to a large defense prime. And then a couple months, about eight months ago, I was actually starting a new company myself when um, uh, a headhunter from, or actually several headhunters from Saab started to call. And uh, I decided to look at what it was. And when I figured out sort of what they were looking for, it just seemed like a perfect job. And um, I didn't need to go find a new investor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know that. Uh, I like the entrepreneurial part of you. It teaches you everything really fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, you know, it was a big decision not to start my own new thing again, because we, I mean, we had success the first time around, but um, I believe my wife's a lot happier uh, with me having a real you know, a, a steady, solid job where I don't need to worry about payroll every two weeks. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And it helps the relationship too, right? <laughs> she gets more time with you as well. I haven't seen her in about three and a half weeks, but... <laughs> Are you on like a tour of duty or something? Why not? Um, so I just actually spent a couple of weeks in uh, between the United Kingdom and Sweden. I was over for business meetings at a conference. I actually ended up getting COVID along the way. So I got stuck over there. Um, but my wife's been uh, sort of she's been traveling herself. So she just recently retired out of uh, uh, another large defense contractor. Oh, nice. I spent some time in like the South Sweden area close to Copenhagen. There's like that bridge and yep. it's a beautiful area out there. I love Sweden. I um, uh, Back in November, I actually had the opportunity to go up to um, pretty much the Northern parts. Um, I think sunset was at two 30 in the afternoon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. That was, that was interesting. We got off the plane and then we were walking around and then it was like 11 p.m. and it was still bright. And I was like, yeah. this is this is odd. <laughs> so. so summers, it stays late, late winters. It gets dark very early. So, yeah, I was in I was in Stockholm and uh, Linköping this uh, this past week. Are you so you're on your way back? You're traveling back right now to the States? I just came in last night. Um, oh. I, had, I passed a negative COVID test yesterday and uh, I was able to come back into the country. Welcome back, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So tell me a little bit about like what your day-to-day -day looks like. So uh, what I really like about Saab is they have a, you know, they have a really extensive portfolio of undersea systems. So when they, you know, chartered me to stand up the U.S. division, the challenge was really, you know, not what, you know, what products we needed to develop, but what products in the portfolio best fit for the U.S. market. And how do we bring those to, you know, bring those to bear, bring them to production, uh, transition them to the U.S., really Americanize them in a way so that we can sell them to U.S. defense, um, you know, the U.S. Department of Defense, U.S. Navy, stand up production, stand up a build team here, transition the technology. You know, it was really kind of a, you know, clean slate. How do we get, how do we start a real a business here based on technology we can leverage from Sweden? Oh, that's cool. So when I was looking at some of like the underwater systems, you had stuff for discovery, you had stuff for defense. So you just picked those out of the existing portfolio to start the division in the United States? Yeah, really. It, it involves um, talking to the customer and figuring out what they really want. And, you know, from a portfolio perspective, you know, what was great was we had a, a huge amount of technology available and it really comes down to aligning what the customer wants with what we can do. 
and then picking the right products that we can sell sort of the fastest and, and stand up a company in a new division as, you know, as quick as we can and make it make that impression and impact on the market. That's that's pretty cool. That's, it sounds like a super exciting opportunity because then not only like entrepreneur, you typically start, you know, well, obviously at the bottom, right? And then you have to build it up and everything. But when you can start division of a company that's like a household name, you can just go really far. You know, it's when I started uh, my prior company, Riptide, we literally started in the kitchen on a credit card, right? And it was, you know, there was all the challenges that came with, you know, I didn't, I didn't have a really, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I had always been with more solid companies throughout my career. So it was, it was really kind of going out on a limb. But when Saab called and sort of laid this out, it was just, it was a whole new challenge because it was an established company. It was, you know, a huge product base they had already and really good working technology. And I didn't, you know, I didn't need to develop anything really new to start with. So it was just, it was a much different challenge. And, you know, the, what I liked about it was really opened up everything where I could, you know, focus on growing the right team of people, you know, really pull in products that made sense for what we needed based on a, you know, a proven technology capability that was already established. Um, you know, we'll develop our own capabilities and our own products as we go forward, but obviously being able to leverage what's already out there and what they already have is a, is a big, you know, big advantage for us. And was Riptide like exploration? Was it advanced weaponry? Um, so Riptide was a, um, it was a micro UV, primarily a, a small, uh, unmanned undersea vehicle. Um, it was about 25 pounds, right? It, uh, about three feet long, 25 pounds. Um, you know, I joked that the you know, at the time when most unmanned undersea vehicles were about a million bucks, uh, we started selling vehicles for about 10K. And, you know, I, I joked that, you know, the reason was because I had a 10K limit on my credit card. And if I could, if I could spend 10K to make it, I could probably sell it for that and start making more. So, um, you know, the, the price point was, you know, it was somewhat driven by the fact that we had limited dollars to invest. But the other need was, we saw a lot of demand for um, just new lower cost systems. Um, you know, you look at the aerial drone market, obviously multi-million dollar predators and things like that that have shrunken down to, you know, people are now making, you know, drones in their home, right? You got these little things that cost a couple hundred bucks. Um, so the technology has really moved a long way. And we were just really looking to take advantage of where the current market was and, you know, get things out there that were a lot more um, affordable for, you know, the broader users, schools, universities, research institutions, things like that, and really open up the ocean as much as we could. You should talk to the BattleBots people and see if they could do like an underwater edition. Um, so one of my close friends was actually one of the founders of BattleBots. And uh, I do, I, I tend to watch it now and then, especially when he's on. So, Oh, what's his name? Uh, Christian Carlberg. C2 Robotics. They had the uh, the Yeti was the is this oh, big yeah. vehicle in this season. We had on the referee guy. He's like one of the executive producers. I think his name. Yeah. I, I don't want to butcher it, but I can't. I think it's like maybe John or something. But yep. yeah, the BattleBots is a. I, I did the interview and because my team was like, "Hey, do you want to talk to BattleBots?" I was like, "Of course," because I remember, <laughs> you know, like the one episode I saw ten years ago. You just kind of remember it in culture, right? And then afterwards, uh, the interview, he was telling me like people watch it like with their families a lot. Right. And I've got two little kids cause it's, you know, it's family safe. So I proceeded to watch after that interview, every single episode of battle bots and existence. <laughs> so Christian, as I understand it actually started, uh, started out really working with his daughters. It was a joint family project to get his daughter into robotics. And, um, yeah, I worked with Christian too, probably 25 years ago or so. And she's been a good friend and, uh, done really well with it. 
That is super cool. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the discovery. Um, we mentioned it earlier, but what part of the technology of Saab's technology was used to make this discovery? Can you tell me about what the discovery was, what the technology was? Um, I think I can talk on some of that. There's, you know, what's available out in the public domain is is open, so I can I can reference a lot of that. Okay. Um, I do think we have some restrictions still under the the prime and how that exploration went. So in general, two saber tooth vehicles went on the um, went on that expedition and were involved with searching for and then ultimately locating the uh, the endurance uh, Ernest Shackleton's endurance. Um, so they found the, uh, found that ship at uh, 3,000 meters of water. I think reports vary between 2,998 uh, 2, and 3,008 meters, but the vehicles themselves were limited, were 3,000 meter rated vehicles. So it was right at the sort of the hairy edge of where they can get to. Um, obviously, there's safety factors on the vehicles and that, but the vehicles are, um, the Sabertooth vehicles are very unique in that they're, um, they're a hybrid ROV AUV. So they can operate tetherless or they can operate with a tether. And in this case, they were operating under ice. So they had the tether to the vehicle. Um, vehicle can be fully autonomous or can be remotely controlled via that tether. Oh, okay. But the um, one of the unique things about that vehicle is because it's um, set up the way it is, it's um, a lot of times your UUVs are typically, a, they're a smart torpedo, right? They can go out and they can they can mow the grass with so side scan sonars looking for you know imagery, and detecting things in that sonar imagery. What's unique about Sabretooth is it's actually, a, it's capable of hovering, it can go forward, it can go backwards, it can change its orientation. So it's much more controllable, six degree of freedom sort of orientation um, that allows it to really get in close to a wreck, inspect it, you know, it can mow the grass as well, but it's really meant for um, very high maneuverability um, in inspection type missions, which is, which is what the, you know, some of those imageries we see online of the endurance with the, you know, the, the golden lettering across the back of the ship and just the, you know, the, how well preserved that shipwreck is, is just amazing. And that's all due to the fact that, you know, it's a very stable vehicle. It's there taking that imagery. Well, what was the endurance? I mean, I, I know it's a ship, but can you tell me more about what it was? Um, so now I wish I have read a lot more on Ernest Shackleton, <laughs> but, um, Back in, um, you know, 107 years ago, Shackleton was an Arctic explorer, Antarctic explorer, and the Endurance was a, um, an exploration mission to, to the South Pole, and he got caught in the ice, and I think it was about a year and a half that it took him to um, basically get off the ice, get to um, one of the, uh, I think, George's Island, maybe, or one of the close islands there. Um, to get a rescue party together to go back and rescue his crew. So it was a long, you know, it was a, heroes were made from this. Uh, I'm not sure ultimately how many people ended up dying or, or but, uh, you know, they, his crew basically spent almost a year and a half, I think, on the ice in Antarctica locked in. And eventually the ship uh, that was caught in the ice got broken up and, and sunk. The shipwreck itself uh, ended up about four miles from where it was reported. Um, so that was one of the reasons they've actually mounted several expeditions to go and find it. And they were successful this time around using the Sabertooth technology, unlike past expeditions. But um, the ship was uh, sitting upright in pristine condition, really, considering how long it had been down. Um, but it's a wooden ship, you know, from over 100 years ago and just in beautiful, beautiful shape for, you know, given the cold water, given the depth, given the lack of um, things that eat wood in that temperature water and at that depth. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, that's plenty of information. You know a lot about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so some the saber tooth one that helped find that when when you're taking the technology from you know some an exploratory piece of technology like the saber tooth, um, and you're then going to make it so where like maybe uh, like rockets or somehow weaponize it. Are you do you like use existing models and then weaponize them, or do you just build the model specifically for each use case? How does that work? Um, so the, the way that um, a lot of the platforms work is the, the platform provides really the core capabilities. So basic autonomy, navigation control, uh, depth keeping, altitude above the bottom, um, propulsion, so speed, vehicle control, what it needs to do. And then the, we add the payloads to the vehicle to then make it really missionized for what it's going to do, whether it's you know put a high-end sonar on it to look for stuff. Uh, put an acoustic package out to potentially run uh, training missions for, you know, the good guys sonars or deception missions for the bad guys um, acoustic capabilities. Um, they can be weaponized with explosives. In a lot of cases, most of the undersea vehicles um, that, that do blow up, um, I mean, at one extreme, you have torpedoes. <laughs> um, but at the other end, you have um, uh, mine countermeasures, uh, mine neutralization systems, where we'll really go in and where, for instance, mines are put out, um, they can be used to neutralize and blow up the mines. Oh, very good. In some cases, that's, um, you know, that's a sacrificial mission where the vehicle itself will blow up. In other cases, we can drop or plant a charge and then the vehicle can go back to a safe distance while the charge then, then explodes. What's the difference between a saber tooth and a sea wasp? Um, so they they both have a high degree of maneuverability. The Sea Wasp is really set up specifically for a mine neutralization mission, so that'll okay. be able to hold um, either one or multiple charges for neutralization. Um, so it can inspect things. It's it's a slightly smaller vehicle than the saber tooth, so the range typically as you get smaller, your range goes down. And then another question we were talking about during the production meeting, like the prep for this, was. You know, GPS doesn't work well underwater, correct? Uh, correct. You only have it when you're on the surface. Or you can, um, they have some different acoustic capabilities where they can, if you have a surface node, you can sort of extrapolate from that surface node where you are subsea via, you know, ultra short baseline communications or things like that. But when the vehicle's on the surface, it tends to have GPS. And then once it dives, it's either, you know, navigating on its own without GPS sort of dead reckoning or be an acoustic update with a surface GPS um, enhancement. So there's a number of different communication methods you can use throughout the journey from where it starts to how it's deployed to where its destination ends. Yeah. The challenge really comes down to, I mean, physics underwater is just a lot harder. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you don't have radio frequency, so you can't get GPS, you can't get RF comms. When you talk about you know acoustic modems and and typical undersea communications modes that they can use, go back you know you're 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 talking like 1970s early 80s baud rates on you know computer modems bits per second right you're not talking you know everybody now is used to you know 5G 4G communications and undersea it's you know it's really like Morse code. So is that what these tether, like the argument was sometimes in the videos we were watching, like it was just the torpedo. Other times mm -hmm. it looked like it had the string attached to it. Yeah. So it can, so a lot of torpedoes, including sobs can operate via a tether. And the benefit of that tether is you just get, you know, you get uh, wideband communications to it. You get, you know, you get full communications because you're in contact with the vehicle and you don't have to worry about that acoustic link. 
Um, the downside of that tether is it can limit operations. You know, there was a great quote by one of the early founders sort of in this undersea vehicle space, a guy by the name of Jim McFarland. Jim always had the saying where, you know, the greatest advantage of an ROV is, is its tether. The greatest disadvantage of an ROV is its tether. So it's just, it's one of these things where if you need that real-time link, you know, it's, it's available, but the problem is it also limits what you can do with the vehicle. You know, it really depends the mission you're trying to go after and what you're trying to do with it. But ultimately, even with tethered vehicles, what we're seeing is a trend toward much smarter, greater autonomous capabilities, even on those systems so that the operator isn't as, you know, doesn't need to be as heavily involved with everything that the vehicle does, right? He's not controlling every aspect of the vehicle control. The vehicle is really maintaining its own position and the operator is just giving it sort of indications and desires for what they want to do with the vehicle once it's employed. And so how long can these tethers go? Um, I've worked ROV tethers in uh, past life, you know, tens, tens of thousands of feet. So, I mean, if you look at ROV capabilities, most commercial ROVs go to uh, 3,000, you know, deeper rated systems, uh, 3,000, 4,500 meters. Uh, there are systems out there that go to 6,000 meters. So you're looking at, um, you know, 20,000 feet, almost four miles of tether. That's crazy. The, the challenge with particularly tethered systems is it's the you're talking usually a cable that has to have you know strength elements to it so by the time you get down that deep you know your tether can be quite substantial and you know the weight of the tether can be you know some cases way more than the actual vehicle you're putting on the end of it so in a tethered system you have to have a lot of power on the vehicle to really be able to 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 fight the tether and help control its position you know with all of that drag that's really behind it how long until we have like um, autonomous turrets that just are positioned in the ocean that just scan for enemy ships and take them out based <laughs> off of their own programmed orders? Uh, I don't know if I can answer that. <laughs> uh, the answer is we already have it. It's already out there. It's like, I want to make sure that I have every RFID chip or whatever identification I need <laughs> if I'm traveling around in the waters because that's how... I mean, they can identify things with vision, but they can also identify things with other. Yeah, I wonder, and you don't have to answer this, by the way, but um, I wonder how how would you solve that? Like, if like even on land systems, I mean, vision's pretty easy on land, right? Um, to make decisions, but vision's not as easy in water, correct? I mean, I'm an avid scuba diver, and you know, I've dove where I can't see my hand. Right? You, yeah. You can be in certain water conditions where you know you don't have six inches of visibility. It's really that bad. Um, it just really depends where you are in the world. You know, if you're in the Caribbean, you tend to have a hundred feet or more of visibility. If you're in, you know, I'm looking at Boston Harbor right now, and you know, I'd be surprised if it's more than three feet. So, I mean, that's why you know, sonar is really you know, it's underwater radar for lack of a better description. It's, it's using sound waves to basically get a, get an idea of the environments. It's, you know, it's how dolphins and whales have, have spent their lives. So with sonar, is there a way for me to have like some sort of unique ID? It's like, let's say you have two of the identical ships, one mm -hmm. ship's red and one ship's blue. You can't physically see them with sonar. Is there some way to assign some sort of unique identifier to it? by responding to the sonar technology or no? Um, so, I mean, there's, there's um, typically two types of sonar, right? There's active sonar and passive sonar where you're putting out a signal and you can put whatever signal you want. You know, you can control that for frequencies, for, you know, 
width for um, you know everything that's that you can possibly put into a signal from low frequency, mid frequency, high frequency. So that's really at your and and there's different purposes for that, right? For active, you can you can use it to see, you can use it to light up a target, you know that you're looking for. You can use it to generate a reaction of of some kind. Um, on passive systems, you're you know you're really more listening for what others are doing whether it's a motor in the water and, you know, every motor sounds different, even if it's in the same ship. So from historical, you know, Navy days, you know, the Navy used to track foreign submarines and be able to tell which submarine was which submarine. Granted, they were a lot louder in the, in the early days before they did a lot of quieting work that, uh, you know, now makes it much, much more of a challenge. Do you think like, I want to talk a little bit about propulsion and energy, um, I'm assuming these things are powered with battery or some sort of fuel or what? Um, so there's a lot of different propulsion technologies out there, right? If you look at the U.S. Navy submarine force, every ship in the U.S. Navy is uh, nuclear powered. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's there's a huge amount of advantage that that gives you and, you know, you never have to surface. A lot of the foreign navies and a lot of the, the sob built submarines that are out there are, um, you know, diesel electric where they'll... You know, they'll have actually a, a fuel cell potentially on the vehicle, uh, Sterling engine capability, something like that. But they have to come up occasionally, snorkel, uh, run a generator, you know, recharge batteries, things like that. In most undersea vehicles, you know, if it's a tethered vehicle, we actually have the ability to put power down the tether. So we don't have to necessarily have batteries on the, on the platform. But in a lot of the fully autonomous vehicles, and if you're going to cut the tether or have a hybrid vehicle, you need power on the vehicle. And typically... You know, lithium batteries are used pretty extensively. There's some older battery technology that's still heavily used because of the safety. You know, lithium, I think everybody's familiar with some of the things that go wrong with, you know, ear pads and the Sony laptops and things like that. You know, there's an aphorism. The only difference between a battery and a bomb is the rate of discharge. <laughs> so, you know, you can, so, you know, bad things can happen with batteries in seawater, unfortunately. And, you know, you're in an environment that's, um, you know, a lot of pressure cold temperatures, you know, hazard to electrical if, if there's a leak, things like that. So, oh, dude, this world is so, this is so big. I heard some crazy stat that we've barely explored like a fraction of our ocean floor. Do you think that that's true? Um, there's actually a, some of the best articles I've read in that space uh, are uh, from a guy named Anthony Damare. Anthony is, um, he's got a company called Bedrock um, Technology, Bedrock Systems. He's written a lot of um, a couple, uh, three primary articles. I'm thinking that um, really describe the problem about how you know we know more about the moon than we do what's on the ocean. It's just you know we haven't really looked. You know, I go back to when I was with a company called Bluefin. Um, we were kind of in the right place at the right time with a vehicle when um, you know tragically MH370 went down the missing Malaysian airline flight in the west of Australia. So our vehicle, a couple of our employees were there, um, you know, days after to start the search. And um, when they first got on site, you know, everybody from, you know, and looking at the global maps and how deep the water was, the vehicle was only rated to 4,500 meters water depth, which is, you know, almost three miles deep. It's pretty deep. But when we got there and the first dive went down, the vehicle boarded when it got to the basically its maximum depth and it still wasn't anywhere near the bottom. So when they the Australian Navy immediately brought in a hydrographic survey ship and did a resurvey of the area, and it was 5,000 meters deep. So it was, you know, they were off by the depth globally kind of thought from all the international charts that were out there was off by greater than 
And it's just, you know, and that's, you know, that's today, right? That's not that long ago. It's, you know, a couple of years back. It's, it's, I think the last person that had really, you know, measured the depth of the ocean there was probably Cook with a rope and a rock. You know, it's, it's, it's sad to see that there's, you know, and we're getting better. We have a lot more sensors going out. We have a lot more ships that are doing, um, you know, bathymetric surveys as they transit. There's just, there's more and more data coming in, but, um, you know, it is astounding that, you know, when you look at sort of where ships go, that was one area of the world where just not a lot of ships transited through. So we don't, you know, there was no reason to get the, the really oceanographic bathymetric data in that area because, you know, people don't really go there. Is there areas in the, and you don't, you might not know this, but like, are there areas that are so deep that we don't have technology that can reach them? Um, so we have gone to the deepest parts of the ocean, right? The deepest part is the Marianas Trench. And um, we sent, uh, the Trias went there back in the 60s. And then in recent history, James Cameron actually made a, made a uh, dive, a uh, man dive on Challenger Deep was his system. Uh, and then I think the Chinese actually may have just uh, sent, uh, sent a vehicle down as well. So there's now been, I think, three excursions to the deepest part of the ocean. And it's, I mean, it's deeper than Mount Everest is tall, right? It's, it's I think, 30, probably going to get it wrong, 37,000 feet deep. So more than seven miles. That's crazy, man. So we do have the technology today to scan the ocean floor if we wanted to. Um, we have the technology to scan it, but the problem is it's, I mean, it's, you're like scanning it, looking through a straw, right? Your, your typical sensor range is pretty limited and it's, it's a very big ocean. So, you know, your, your typical sonar, um, depending on how big and complex it is, you know, it can see tens of meters maybe. And you look at, you know, look at Malaysia air, they were searching hundreds and hundreds of square miles. Um, and the full search area ended up being, you know, so, so much more. And it's just, you know, to search an area, you know, a typical vehicle, um, standard vehicle in the industry right now can search about 20, 25 miles a, a day, square miles. And that's not, you know, if you look at, you know, Navy has challenges for, you know, what's in the South China Sea, you know, that's, it's decades of, of a single vehicle, right? So you put multiple vehicles in there, it's still years. That's crazy. How many, I wonder how many vehicles you would need. I don't know how many square miles of ocean there are, but it'd probably be like 10,000 or something like vehicles or more, right? You'd probably need a lot of vehicles. It, yeah, it's, you're not going to get there. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I hope you do. I'd like to build a lot of those. <laughs> yeah. I'll put in order. One million, please. Can I have one million of these vehicles? So what is, what is, um, I don't know if you guys put your uh, pricing, if it's public knowledge or something, but like, what would a saber tooth cost? What would a range, a fair range be? <laughs> You know, one, I think I'd get in trouble if I said two, I honestly don't know. Um, okay. It's uh, <laughs> when you look at sort of a lot of the undersea vehicles, you know, most of them are a million bucks or more. And it really depends on the depth rating, the sensors that are on them. You know, there's sonars out there that go on these systems that can cost a half million dollars just for the sonar. Yeah. Um, you know, every, every component, um, you know, and there, you need, you know, navigation systems, Doppler velocity logs, communication systems, all of those pieces can cost, you know, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. So by the time you add it up into a full vehicle, you know, you could easily be looking at a couple million dollars for a, for a highly capable vehicle. Well, I know a guy that can build them for like 10 grand out of his kitchen. So <laughs> <laughs> plus sensors, <laughs> plus sensors. <laughs> 
that's just for the base. That's for the framework. So, <laughs> dude, that is, that is so cool. I'm learning so much about this technology. What is like? What are some of the limitations that, other than you know, distance we can see? What type of limitations are we running up against with the technologies today? You know, the the biggest challenges out there. There's the U.S. Navy came up with a list about it. Well, two decades ago, I guess now, but, um, you know, the, the top one for a long time has always been power. You know, you mentioned batteries and how you power these things. You know, the biggest challenge with underwater is, you know, it's overcoming drag. And, you know, you look at, um, you know, an airplane, you know, drag is sort of a result of uh, the density of the medium you're moving through. And, you know, water is 800 times more dense than air. So immediately your drag goes up so, so much more when you're underwater. So, I mean, that's why you have, you know, planes are easy to fly at hundreds of miles an hour, but once you go underwater, you know, you're look, you're lucky to be able to go a couple knots with a small vehicle. And, you know, you look at torpedoes, they burn a ton of energy going really, really fast, but they can't do it for that long. So they're pretty short range kind of systems. So the, you know, the big challenge is, you know, if you're going to go out persistently and spend a long time with these vehicles, um, you need to be really, really efficient and you need a really high energy density battery or power capability or energy storage basically on the vehicle. And there's just, you know, you're limited with, you know, your current, um, you know, battery technology, you know, even the, the state of the art stuff that's going into Tesla's and that it's just, it's still not that, that good. It's, you know, it's better than we had a couple of years ago, but it's battery technology just hasn't evolved that quickly. You know, there hasn't been really any big steps, um, you know, nuclear power. There's a reason U S uses nuclear power in all their submarines. Problem is, I don't think you're ever going to put a you know a nuclear, you know, radio thermal generator or battery or something like that on a UV just because it's you know there isn't some inherent dangers there. Yeah, I also think that it's got a bad rap in society, like culturally. But as far as a technology, it's a brilliant answer. Like, yeah. and I'm I'm seeing more and more like the stigma sorting sort of fading away. Like as people become more competent and understanding, even the general public of technology and how it works and how it changes and evolves, people I think are more open and willing. Like I I I've been following this personally, like the advancement of nuclear technology, um, simply because the first time I heard it and started looking at the densities of of what the technology can do as a, a fuel source. I saw that like this is a no-brainer. We should be investing everything into figuring this out, like the waste from it, the amount of energy it can pre- be produced, and then instantly when I connected it with the fact that like bad things happened in the '70s and the '80s and stuff like that, I was like, oh, that makes sense because as humans, you know, we're we're humans, man. Like we're emotional. If we see really bad things happen, we're like, stay far away, and and I hope that we. I actually have a series of interviews coming up, which I'll let you know what I learned from them. But uh, with people that are advancing nuclear technology right now, it's, I mean, it's, it's clean power, right? You're not talking to car, you know, everyone's worried about carbon and, you know, it's, it's just, there's a lot of benefits to it. And you, granted, you, you know, you need to be safe, but there's a lot of capabilities out there. And, you know, U.S. Navy has been using nuclear reactors for a very long time and very safely the whole time. Um, you know, other countries haven't had that same safety record and that's unfortunate. And then when they're building these, like the Navy ships, do you guys get involved with them at all? Or is that something separate? Um, I worked for general dynamics for about half my career. Oh, yeah. So I, I did, I didn't do any work on reactors. I worked mostly on uh, combat systems and, uh, things that go on to submarines from an electronics point of view, but 
How do we handle ethics around autonomous uh, systems, like not specifically yours or General Dynamics, which I've gotten to talk to them a little bit too, but like, let's say you are at Riptide, right? And Riptide decided to make just something that had an ordinance, something that could explode autonomously or fire a projectile autonomously. Like, how would you handle the ethics of that system and its failure rate and things like that? Um, <laughs> you're, you're really asking killer robots, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I'm curious. Do you put like a, a group of people together? Do you find like autonomous ethicists? Like, I mean, I'm not skilled to be having that conversation in detail. Well, I mean, ultimately what we tend to build is built to basically a Navy requirement and Navy specification. So how are they going to use it? And, and that to some extent separates the, you know, a lot of the defense contractors from the, from the challenge. And, and typically just to point out, when it comes to um, actual munitions and, and the, the charges and that going onto the system, that's usually done after market by the Navy, right? So they'll, they'll put on that, uh, that weapon payload themselves in their own facilities. Um, so typically contractors don't handle any, any explosives, things like that, unless they're truly an explosives house. When you look at really the, the challenges of how those systems are employed, either you know, with people or are they autonomously doing something? There's a lot of debate there currently in the in the military. In a lot of cases, even for like something as you know, like mine neutralization, the Navy wants to see the mine before they they shoot it or put a charge into it. So in a lot of cases, that's where those systems, although they could be autonomous, tend to go back to you know, man in the loop, tethered systems where the Navy puts eyeballs on it before a human pulls the trigger. Um, so that's, it's kind of where they are. And then there's an ongoing debate. There's some houses, you know, some parts of the Navy that think they're ready to move toward autonomous kill on a neutralization vehicle. There's others that, um, you know, still want the capability for man in the loop. So the way that these, um, defense contractors interface with the buyers, which are governments like militaries of governments, is they're providing some sort of like RFP or some sort of like spec and then, they respond back to that spec and like that's how you, it's not like in the it's very different when we're doing SaaS software <laughs> how we inter, <laughs> how we interface with our customers right these are typically like one off projects or they're contracted projects for very specific outcome and highly detailed specifics like technologies and is that how it goes yeah so typically um what the way that programs tend to evolve is the you know It'll start out with the Navy lab where they'll work demonstration systems. They'll put out some RFPs. And in a lot of cases, they'll do their own development or work with an outside contractor to sort of build a fundamental capability that they can then, you know, really demonstrate and try out. And, and you know, this is it. You know, people joke about, you know, the, the $10,000 hammers and things like that. Well, what happens is a lot of things go back to this long, long development chain. Um, that just takes time and investment and testing and all the different things that go into these things before they become, you know, a sort of a remote possibility for a program. And then the program requirements will then flow into them to build to that then roll out through a request for proposal. They're typically competitive systems. So everybody's bidding to go after these, these capabilities. And it's, you know, the Navy really, at the end of the day, they determine what they're buying. Um, so those requirements flow down from the, the end customers. That's very cool. I have a, um, how do I say this? I have a friend. I'll go with that. I have a friend who, um, 
his job was actually tracing back the materials for the different parts that came in. So like, let's say they're a hammer, right? So he would actually follow the chain of like, where did that metal come from? Where did that wooden handle come from uh, by country and stuff like that? So they trace these parts. All, that's like a job that the military does. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, in this day and age now you look at that and it's, it goes back to every microchip that's in a vehicle, every, you know, there's huge amounts of concern for cybersecurity, you know, was any code put in anything, you know, before it was under your control, times have changed, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that, um, you know, you don't consider every day and what goes, you know, what goes into, you know, your, your mouse, right? Can everything be a listening device, right? It's, it's, it's crazy, right? It's a different world. Yes. It, it's, yeah, I've heard so many stories, people like they'll even attack companies downstream. So they'll like find a, a, a 3d printer that's printing the result of someone one else. So it's like a lower security company, like lower secured company. And then they can steal the blueprints off of those 3d printers. And then they just get the research from these like massively secure companies. <laughs> just use the third party to, to actually run the, run the code. Yeah. And I mean, the, in the recent history, the um, military's put a lot of uh, attention on, I'm not going to remember the acronym, unfortunately, but it's controlled unclassified information is what it stands for. It's unclassified, so it's not controlled at a high level, but the conglomeration of it out there is it can become sensitive when you start putting all this together into uh, potentially military systems. That's very cool. One thing I want to talk about, because I just saw that we're kind of close on time here, is I wanted to know about, let's see this guy, this underwater robot repair stuff. Tell me about that. <laughs> uh, EROV. So EROV stands for uh, electric uh, work class ROV. So this is our new uh, largest vehicle that we make through our uh, uh, Saab CI, which is a UK um, group focused on commercial uh, uh, remotely operated vehicles, ROVs. I actually was, um, I had the pleasure of being at a trade show uh two weeks ago in the UK, um, where we had uh, sort of one of the first models there on the floor. And uh, I'll show you a picture of it life-size just to give you some. Oh, wow. That's way bigger than I thought. Our team was saying that um, we think it's like the Wally of the sea, but that is not <laughs> Wally. That's like a small transformer. <laughs> it is, oh, the amount of power that that thing uh, takes from the top side and converts for subsea use is, uh, is incredible. That it's uh, it's a fully electric vehicle. It can handle a great deal of current and a great deal of um, of thrust in in any direction. It's uh, it's a it's a really incredible new capability. Uh, the other thing about it that's really unique is when you look at those two uh, manipulator arms on the front. Those are now fully electric manipulators. Historically, a vehicle like that would have a lot of hydraulics on it, which can be you know reliability or you know leaking oil. Just it's not you know this is really the the most modern electric vehicle that's ever been made. Um, we just had a large sale um, to a company called uh, Ocean Infinity um, that's been out publicly um, addressed now, where they're going to put uh, these vehicles on unmanned surface vehicles and run fully autonomous, you know, over the horizon with an operator basically sitting in his his home office. But the um, you know the ROV and the USV are out doing 
remote work, uh, deep ocean exploration, operations, maintenance, without any people involved. At the, so I can at send a ship. Day. I can be at my computer in you know Tennessee, and I can yep. actually take the ship from port that has this giant device on it, this giant Wally thing on it, and <laughs> put it, take it out deep sea. You know, and then have it the Wally thing actually deploy into the water and do its job, and then come back, and we can bring it back to port. Like you can do all of that autonomously. Yes. Whoa, that is so cool. It uh, it should be fielded starting in uh, 2023. What's the name the, of that um, company the, again? Say it. Uh, Ocean Infinity is the company, and they're calling this the Armada Fleet. Okay, we need to have them on the show. We, we no, that's right. Let's make sure the production team makes a note of that because that thing is cool. I'm very surprised at the size of that. I'm glad you showed me. Ocean Infinity is they're a very unique company that's uh, really been pushing the bounds of technology in the space. So they've really been, um, you know, they've been a great customer to Saab CI, um, but they're um, doing some great things. So when I first saw this picture up top, it reminded me of. Um, well, two things. The first thing it reminded me of was the underwater cables that power the internet that go between countries and the repair that needs to happen on them. And the second thing is like potentially an oil spill. Do these machines, are they like overkill for that? Or can they maintenance internet lines with them and clean up oil spills? Those are typically all, um, you know, all operations that these do. So on the subsea side, They'll do uh, maintenance, uh, inspection, repair, and maintenance of uh, deep sea wellheads, things like that. Um, they'll inspect pipelines, uh, gas and oil pipelines uh, that, that transect the North Sea, things like that. Subsea cable installation, you know, changing out repeaters, things like that. That's all within their, their capabilities. That's very cool. Man, you are just a wealth of knowledge on this underwater <laughs> robot stuff. This has been fantastic. We're coming up on time here. Was there anything that you wanted to get out to the world that we haven't covered yet? Uh, I hope the message is subsea robots are really cool. <laughs> yeah, that's we can make that the title of the episode. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.